This is More Christianity, exploring the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church with Father Dwight Longenecker, former Anglican priest, now Catholic author, blogger, and speaker. And now, from the WCKI studios in upstate South Carolina, Father Dwight Longenecker. Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church here in Greenville, South Carolina. This program is a ministry of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church. We're located where Augustic Road meets I-85. Come and join us and worship the Lord in the Catholic tradition at Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church. Today we're talking about the Catholic Church and culture, especially in the area of literature and popular culture. Therefore, we need to ask the question, where does the Christian faith actually show itself within popular culture? Very often, culture wars, especially here in America between Christians and Hollywood, Christians and the TV industry, Christians and the publishing industry, Christians and the media, and very often the media and television and radio and, and film and, and uh, video and so forth is all portrayed as being of the devil, of being worldly, of not having anything Christian in it. However, Christianity, if it's really going to have an impact, has to infiltrate and has to get into popular culture. We have to be able to speak the language of the people that we're talking to. St. Paul and St. John, St. Peter all went out as evangelists in the first century and they spoke the language of the people they were talking to. They learned the language of the culture and the culture of the people they were speaking to and they were able to adapt their message without compromising their message in a way that people were able to accept it and understand it. So where does Christianity actually come into play with, say, the world of films and movies or uh, popular books and stories and TV shows and all this media that we have thrown at us all the time through screens and through publishing and print media, where do we find Christ? Where can he actually be discovered? Where can he actually be placed by Christian writers and Christian artists? It's a difficult and it's a complex question. I've got Joseph Pierce with me as a guest today. Um, he's going to be talking to me in the second part of the program today about uh, how Christianity can be placed within popular culture, how we can discover Christ in one of the greatest works of art of the last century, and that is J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Before we do, though, I'd like to think for a few more moments about how we discover Christ in culture. Where Where is he coming to us? Where is he hidden, if you like, in the popular culture? First of all, I think we have to make a distinction between explicit and implicit. There are plenty of explicit works of Christian art and Christian literature where, quite obviously, the movie or the television program, the book, the story, the uh, website, the blog, whatever, is explicitly Christian. In other words, it has Jesus right up there in the headlines. Uh, they're talking about the Christian faith. They're talking about Jesus Christ. They're talking about the Catholic faith. They're talking about Christian morals. They're talking about Christian principles. The story is driven by Christian characters. The story is driven around a Christian theme. And it's very easy to see that this is Christian examples of the media. Very often, these kind of stories will be about great Christian heroes. Uh, it'll be stories about the saints, about the great Bible characters. It'll be people who are involved in perhaps moral decisions which involve their Christian faith. It'll be something where maybe there's a missionary going out and giving his or her life, or maybe it's someone who's laying down their life in a sacrificial way for their Christian family member or some particular Christian cause that they're, they're in favor of. And these works are good, they're worthy, and they're explicitly Christian and therefore usually ministering, therefore, to a Christian market or to Christian audience or people who are at least uh, coming from a Christian background and are sympathetic to the Christian Christian message. So you have these explicit Christian works on one hand in TV, media, film, whatever, but 
What really interests me, however, is what we might call the implicit Christian message, where the message of Jesus Christ is buried in the actual story, in the film, the book, the TV show, or whatever. And you might ask yourself, why is the Christian message buried in the story? Why don't they bring it up front? Why don't they have the heroes discussing their Christian faith and their Christian beliefs and and try to communicate the message a bit more clearly? Well, a Christian artist, a Christian writer who's, who's working in the area of fiction or film or drama will embed the Christianity within the very heart of the story. They'll do that through Christian themes. The theme is the driving idea or the driving motivation of the story underneath the story itself. They'll do it through a Christian subtext. A subtext is a whole level of assumptions that's going on within the Christian, within the language of the film, within the script of the story, or within the script of the drama. They'll embed it through Christian characters, characters who are not necessarily explicitly Christian or even victorious Christians, but you find out partway through the film that they're actually Christians, that they, they have some sort of Christian symbol or they make a Christian action or you see them going into a church and you realize, hey, this person is a person of faith. The author has buried this Christian character within the story and then you, on reflection, you realize that what he's doing is living out his Christian faith or trying to through the drama of the story. And so through these Christian behaviors, Christian characters and Christian themes, the Christian message is buried deep within the story. I can think of lots of stories where this actually happens. There was a great movie out called Grand Torino starring Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood as a director. The main hero, uh, the Clint Eastwood character, is a Polish-American Korean War veteran. And you see him, first of all, at his wife's funeral in a Catholic church. He goes back to his neighborhood, which is being besieged by Asian youths in uh, gangs. And um, the whole crux of the story is this tough old Korean War veteran and how he's going to stand up to the gangs. Well, you don't see him praying. You don't see him going back to church. In fact, you see him having a little bit of a drink problem. He also has a problem with his temper. He has bad language, and he is not really a plaster saint. But as the plot of the story moves on, we see the Clint Eastwood character actually behaving in a very Christian way and coming up with some moral choices, which he makes, which are integrated deeply with a faith that he holds underneath his his surface cynicism and, and anger and so forth. He has a good relationship with a local priest who helps him to, to face the reality of what he's, he's doing and the Christian gospel within the story. And so in a story like that, and a story like numerous others of Hollywood films and books that I could mention, the Christian characters are buried in the story. The Christian behaviors are buried in the story, almost like treasures that need to be discovered. And so when we're considering Christianity and culture, Catholicism and culture, we have to look at the whole story and how is the whole story being communicated because what the author, what the writer, what the actors and directors are trying to do is they're trying to embed the truths deep within reality. Now, the reason they do this is because art is incarnational. And what we mean by that is that the artist is always trying to dress up the truth in a kind of costume or a mask of reality. It's almost like all of it is a any story, any any book, any any fictional novel, any any film or drama is almost like the the author is taking the truths and trying to show them to you acted out and lived out. Now, I find this really exciting as a Catholic because our whole faith is based in the incarnation in which the word of God, which is the theory if you like, the word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word of God, the creating principle of God in the world, comes and dwells as his son, Jesus Christ. And he is enrobed in human flesh, we say. He takes on human flesh. He lives out the truth in our midst. And we're, as Christians, we're expected to live out the truth 
and make it come alive in the world. In the second half of the program today, we're going to talk to Joseph Pierce. He has written widely on the spirituality and the Catholicism of J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was a friend of C.S. Lewis and the author, of course, of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, a wonderful Catholic and a wonderful example to his family and to his friends. Tolkien went to Mass every single day uh, of his life and drew very close to the Lord Jesus through his worship and through his life of prayer and sacrifice. However, in The Lord of the Rings, we don't find explicit Christianity or explicit Catholicism. Instead, Tolkien has done what I've just been talking about. He buries it deep down in the story. And we're going to talk about that after the break. You're listening to more Christianity, exploring the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina. Why not connect with Father Longenecker every day through his popular blog, Standing on My Head? Why the weird title? Because G.K. Chesterton said, a scene is most often more clearly seen when it is seen upside down. In Standing on My Head, Father Longenecker writes on current issues, blogs about the faith, and entertains with his wacky alter egos, inspiring us to stand firm in our Catholic faith, a faith which stands the world on its head. More Christianity is also the name of one of Father Longenecker's most popular books, based on the idea that the Catholic faith is more than, not something different from, Protestant evangelicalism. Father Longenecker shows how Catholicism completes and fulfills other expressions of the Christian faith, perfect for evangelical Christians who want to understand the Catholic faith better. More Christianity is available through Father Longenecker's website, DwightLongenecker.com. Before we continue with the program, I'd like to share with you one of the books I've written. Catholicism Pure and Simple is just that. It introduces people to the Catholic faith using simple language and goes step-by-step through the reason Jesus Christ came into the world, the Holy Spirit, the foundation of the Church, the sacraments, the life of prayer, and the, and the life of being a Catholic. I wrote Catholicism Pure and Simple in order to share the Catholic faith with people who need to be evangelized. I've also used it for 8th grade confirmation and RCIA. Connect with Catholicism Pure and Simple. You can find it on my website, DwightLongenecker.com. And now, back to more Christianity. Welcome back to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina. Today we're talking on More Christianity about how the Christian faith can be embedded within popular culture. Sometimes it's explicit and we can see the Christian message and Christian characters. More often it's embedded in the story of individual characters' struggles and the Christian setting and the, and, and the principles and the values of the character and how they have to work that out in their life. Today I've got as my guest Joseph Pierce, biographer, writer, and uh, an expert on Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton and various other wonderful Christian writers. And Joseph is going to talk to us and and share with us about how Christianity is actually locked in the wonderful works of J.R. Tolkien. So welcome, Joseph. It's good to be back. J.R. Tolkien, you say he's a Catholic writer, and certainly he was a Catholic. We know that he went to Mass every day, and one of his sons became a priest, and uh, his family was deeply Christian. His mother was a convert. That's all well and good, but 
how is the Lord of the Rings a Catholic work? Because, I mean, Jesus is never in it. Neither is Mary or Joseph or, or any of the saints. And uh, you never even hear them pray or talk about liturgy or church or anything like that, uh, even in a negative way. So, I mean, how is it Catholic? Oh, absolutely. There's no institutional religion whatsoever in the Lord of the Rings. So how can you call it a Catholic work? Well, the first thing we need to say is that I'm not calling it a Catholic work. The person who calls it a Catholic work is J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the work. And to quote him exactly, these are his words. He said, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Hmm. So, of course, fundamentally religious and Catholic. Well, you may say, what do you mean, of course? Well, there's no mention of Christ. So what we need to to do is unlock the Lord of the Rings to to find out how exactly does that Christianity, does that Catholicism emerge. For those who've never read Lord of the Rings or seen the movies, one of the obvious things is that this story takes place uh, outside of any kind of Christian culture. I mean, within Tolkien's mind, he's setting it way back in time, if you like, even before Christ. Is that right? Yes. Middle Earth, the, the place where the Lord of the Rings takes place, is this world, not just not another planet, but it's this world thousands and thousands of years ago. Right, in, where, pre, in prehistory. Exactly. Right. But in the Silmarillion, which is another one of Tolkien's work, we get the creation myth, the uh-huh. creation story of Middle Earth, and it's in the beginning... This, again, I'm, I'm quoting it word for word here. In the beginning was the one, Iluvata, the All-Father. Mm-hmm. So first of all, Middle-earth is uh, not a polytheistic cosmos. It's not a, an atheistic cosmos. It's a monotheistic cosmos, the one, right. the All-Father, the one God. Now, of course, there's been no incarnation. Christ has not revealed himself uh, as a man. So therefore, the Christian God is implicit, embedded, to use your phrase, within the story. And Tolkien reveals it in an ingenious way, basically, by giving uh, the climactic moment in Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. is the destruction of the One Ring, which, right. which symbolizes evil, if you like. Now, when does that happen? It happens on March the 25th. A crucial date. Absolutely. Now, again, I've, <laughs> I've, I've given talks on the Lord of the Rings uh, right. at, at state universities and Ivy League schools, secular institutions. And, you know, you say March 25th and everyone looks at you blankly, right. you know. And then you say, well, you know, March 25th and they don't know. And you say, what happened nine months after? And they, they count, you know, and then they get December 25th. Okay. So Jesus is born. So what happens nine months before? Well, Jesus is conceived. And actually give the powerful evangelical witness that teaching the Lord yes. of the Rings can do. Now, you can then say, you know, to three or four hundred students at a state university, well, because life begins at conception and not at birth, no, March the 25th is a natural fact more important than December right. 25th. So, so you can embed a, a pro-life teaching e- point. Exactly, point. exactly. The, right. you know, the word becomes flesh on March the 25th. Uh-huh. Um, the incarnation, God becomes man on March the 25th. Also, the early church fathers and the medieval church believed that the crucifixion was mm-hmm. on March the 25th. So right. our Lord is conceived, he becomes man, and he dies on the same date. This is the date that Tolkien chooses in the text to have the, the ring destroyed. Right. And also significantly, when Frodo and the Fellowship of the Ring leave Rivendell is on December the 25th. Right. Now, one of the things which intrigues me about Lord of the Rings in this same respect is through the divine office that I say as a priest every day, of course, I'm reading the Psalms, I'm reading the Old Testament. And I'm always impressed as I read it that so much of the language and so much of the imagery and so much of the symbolism of the Lord of the Rings echoes the Psalms, echoes Isaiah the prophet, echoes the poetry of the Old Testament, even to the point, for instance, that there's this famous song that people use in worship on eagle's wings. Well, that goes back to the prophet Isaiah, he shall bear you up on eagle's wings and uh, rescue you. And then there's that scene, isn't there, um, at the end of the Lord of the Rings where the eagles come and, and bear them away. And there's all this Old Testament imagery, and it really, in a way, reminds me that 
Lord of the Rings set eons before Christ points to Christ and echoes Christ in the same way that the Old Testament does. Of course, we're not equating the Lord of the Rings with divine, with divine scripture. It is doing what the Old Testament does, but imperfectly it's pointing to Christ. Right. And again, this scriptural thing in the Silmarillion uh, by Tolkien, another one of Tolkien's books about Middle-earth, the language that he uses to describe the fall of Melkor, who is Satan, uh-huh. Melkor is Tolkien Satan, is, uh, parallels the language of the fall of Lucifer right. uh, in the book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So again, Tolkien uses biblical language, lifelong practicing. Is Catholic. this about the morning star falling from heaven? Exactly, right. exactly. How has thou fallen, Lucifer, star of the morning, or something? Right. In the Book of Isaiah. Well, the actual language in the Silmarillion for the fall of Melkor, the fall of Satan, is very similar to the Book of Isaiah. And there, it also says that Sauron, the Dark Lord and the Lord of the Rings, is the greatest of Melkor's servants. Right. So the greatest of Satan's servants is the Dark Lord. In the Lord of the Rings. So Mm. the evil in the Lord of the Rings is not a relativistic evil. You know, it's a demonic evil. Fascinating. So although it's not specifically Christian, it's deeply Christian in that it's it's using particular themes to point forward. Now, one of the things which always captivated me as well was the way Tolkien doesn't actually in his story have a particular Christ figure. Instead, Gandalf the magician and – Or Frodo – uh, Aragorn, various characters. In you the, had all of them there at fingertips. <laughs> I was grasping for them. They all show Christ in different ways, don't they? Right. A great uh, sign of, of uh, talking subtlety mm-hmm. is the fact that he doesn't use one figure as a Christ figure throughout certain moments in the story or certain attributes of a character remind us of Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. Aslan is a Christ figure throughout all seven stories. Right. So that's, it's very simple and understood. In The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf's death and then several hundred pages later, his resurrection and transfiguration obviously remind us of Christ. Frodo, as the ring bearer who sets forth on December the 25th from Rivendell and destroys the ring on March the 25th on Golgotha, Mount Doom, hmm. is obviously, as the ring bearer, a Christ figure. Aragorn, as the true king, Christ the king, takes right. the paths of the dead and releases the dead themselves from their curse. Right, like like our Lord going into the underworld and, and preaching to the souls from prison and releasing them. Exactly. So uh-huh. you see, you talked about Christianity being embedded. This is the way that Tolkien does it, right. but it's profoundly Christian. How about when Sam carries Frodo up the hill at the last scene and he's, as it were, bearing the cross with the Christ figure and becomes a Christ figure himself, almost bearing the cross himself as exactly. he goes up the hill. Absolutely. So he, he shares in that. And I think really the better way of looking at Sam is a true Christian disciple who follows his Lord through Mordor, again, linguistic, the valley of death. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, when they're going through Mordor, the valley of death, the only thing they have to sustain them is Lembas. The Elvish way bread. Lembas in Elvish means life bread, the bread of life. So it's the Eucharist that sustains them as they go through the valley of death with the loyal disciple following his Lord who's carrying the cross to Mount Doom, Golgotha, where it's destroyed. For our listeners, Tolkien was a philologist, which meant that he was an expert in languages. And he actually created these languages from Middle Earth. And you're telling me that in the Elvish language, Lembas means bread of life? Bread of life, life bread, yeah, literally. Uh, again, and you mentioned word made flesh. Well, right. the, the, the Lord of the Rings came to be because Tolkien invented a language, Elvish language, and then he wanted to invent a story so that people could speak his language, literally the word becoming flesh. That's fascinating. And so it all came out of the development of a language. The language came first, the word came first, and the flesh came afterwards. I think Lord of the Rings, I'm one who actually likes the movies. I think they're, on the whole, really good. But it can't replace reading the book because when you read the book – I can only describe it as one of very, very few works of literature when 
I felt that somehow or other the grace that the author had received had permeated the work itself. I will never forget one time when I was living in England and I was reading, I think, The Return of the King in the Bathtub. And I was so excited about it, I sat up straight in the bath and said, this could only have been written by a Delhi Mass Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And I still can't remember what page it was or what the text was. But there was such an awareness of God's grace coming to me through this work of literature from this man who had faithfully gone to Mass every day, endured great hardships with his family and his and his marriage and his the loss of his father and, and so forth, a man who suffered with great dignity and, and for his faith. And it comes through the book. And when I was talking about embedded Christianity, this is the kind of embedding that I'm talking about where it's not just symbols which are placed there or characters having struggles, but the grace of God itself embedded in a work of art. Let, let's look at what art is. Great art, well, all art is the incarnation of the author's relationship with the giver of the gift. Right. Um, now, of course, the author can distort that gift, pervert that gift. But if the author is a genuinely holy man mm-hmm. who is trying to cooperate with the gift rather than struggle with it, then that light which comes which is purely from God shines forth in the work. The work is an incarnation of sanctity. So that's what a good work of literature can and does and should do. What I like also about Tolkien is his humility. You know, he, he created this language because he liked languages. I mean, what kind of a bookish nerd is he, you know? <laughs> and yet he goes on, and out of sheer enthusiasm and love, he begins writing these stories for his children, fleshing out this language and this world and these characters. He is really not in this for fame or fortune. He was surprised that the books even got published. Am I right? One of the most charming things about The Lord of the Rings is that the author did not believe they would ever be published when he was right. writing them. And in this day and age when, when all of us with our huge ego say, oh, I'm going to write this great novel and get it published and be rich and famous one day, that was not even in Tolkien's yeah, he, mind. He wrote this epic right. for the pure joy of doing it. Well, how did he react when in the 1960s he did actually – it was a craze, wasn't it? The Lord of the Rings and, and hippies and stuff were running. Frodo lives on subway tube trains and stuff and he, he was famous. So how did he respond to that? Well, I think with a mixture of amusement and bemusement. Right. <laughs> he found it rather uh, amusing. And of course, many of them misunderstood it completely, right. trying to put yes. political reasons to it. And Tolkien actually spent the last few years of his life, almost not obsessively, but his main preoccupation was to – Make sure that the Lord of the Rings and all the myths surrounding Middle-earth were theologically solid and orthodox. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things, going back to the movies, that I actually respect about the movies. Philip Aboyans, who is one of the scriptwriters for the film, is a committed Christian. And Peter Jackson, who's not a Christian, still said that they wanted to respect Professor Tolkien's Christian worldview and they wanted to respect his faith. And how do you feel about that? Do you think Tolkien would have liked the movies? Did, do you think that they, they did bring the faith in enough or – I think there are two questions there. You know, what were Tolkien thing and what would I what do I think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Tolkien was a perfectionist, and I think Tolkien would not have liked the uh, the films because of the discrepancies and and, and other right. problems. What do I think of them? I think that the genuine love by the producers of the film and the scriptwriters for Tolkien's work, a genuine desire to do them justice and not do things to them, does shine forth. And although there are, there are problems, not least of which is the fact that Peter Jackson as a sort of uh, a horror filmmaker is much better at depicting evil than, than sanctity. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest single. I mean, Faramir, who's a saintly character in the book, 
is ruined. He comes across a bit as a, as a bit of a wimp, doesn't oh, he? Oh, a wimp, and, he, and, he, yeah. and instead instead of being a saint, which he is in the book, he actually kidnaps Frodo and and, and Sam, which is not it's a complete right. deviation from from the text. And, and the uh, portrayal of Galadriel falls oh. into the problem of a lot of sort of New Agey art, where holiness is portrayed as spookiness, right? You know, and exactly. it's because it's really hard to create a good character, a holy character, because goodness is natural right. and goodness is is ordinary, and to show the goodness through is it's hard work. Well, I agree. But let's reiterate again that for all of its, for all of their problems, the three films are, first of all, great works of art. Mm-hmm. And secondly, they genuinely quite clearly love the works and that comes forth. And I can certainly enjoy them as films as long as I take my Tolkien literary right. hat off. Jackson is obviously having to cater for a film audience to a wide, a very wide global audience for people who are used to going to movies and not necessarily reading books. And so to have translated Tolkien for that audience, I think they did a great job. All also, but I, but I think the, the, the faith that they're showing in Tolkien, and that's the big difference because with the Narnia films now, you know, the politically correct and, and other things are coming in to smother C.S. Lewis's uh, ethical vision. Right Now, Peter Jackson and the other scriptwriters were at pains to be true as far as they could to Tolkien's vision, and therefore they've allowed Tolkien to speak. Now, that makes sense right. because the, lo- the book was the publishing phenomenon of the century. So they follow Tolkien, and what do they get? They get the cinematic equivalent of that phenomenon at the beginning of the 21st century. And the Narnia films are in danger now of basically just petering out into some sort of second-rate political correctness rather than following C.S. Lewis's beautiful vision right. and, and, and having blockbuster films based upon that trust. We're talking with Joseph <laughs> Pierce, an expert in J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and all these things that we're so enthusiastic about. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, the host of More Christianity, where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Joseph, I've got another question for you about J.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Some of the things they did there were actually a little bit more creative with the text. And I'm interested, therefore, in the female characters. We talked about the male characters portraying Christ in different ways. Do you have any ideas about how the female characters in Peter Jackson's film actually portray the Blessed Virgin Mary in different ways? Well, actually, I I do think that with Galadriel particularly, the way that she gives the gifts looks very much like a Lady of Lourdes. And so that Marian dimension, uh, I think, does come forth. In fact, that's one of the strong things. He does use religious art uh, and religious icon- iconography as a means of displaying sanctity, in, I think in a good way, and, and, and that, that would be one example of There's it. There's that moment of when Arwen um, rescues Frodo as well, and that's not actually in the books, I think. And she has a little prayer, doesn't she, where she prays for his healing and it's says, a- may the grace that has been given to me be imparted to you. Yes. That's an addition, a, a religious addition, if possible. And- and we see Mary as the intercessor who actually helps there. What's the other female character, Eowyn? Eowyn, yeah. And she cuts off the head of the dragon like the Blessed Virgin tramples on the head of the serpent. So right. It's, it's there, isn't it? It is. If you'd like to learn more about Joseph Pierce and his work and his, his comments on literature and uh, popular culture, uh, go over to staustinreview.com. Star Magazine is uh, what St. Austin Review stands for. You'll find there um, lots of wonderful writers on all these topics and many more. A subscription is just $40 for six issues a year, com. You've been listening to More Christianity, exploring the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. And I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, your host. More Christianity explores the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church and comes to you from the WCKI studios in upstate South Carolina. Tune in every week for Father Dwight Longenecker's perspectives on Catholic culture, social issues, saints, converts, and the supernatural aspects of the Catholic faith. 
For more about Father Longenecker's work, his website is DwightLongenecker.com. <laughs>